Hello and welcome to the Vorthos Cast. I'm Janelli, and you're listening to the 50th episode of the cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and I can't believe we've been doing this for 50 years already. That's really impressive. I'm Brian Dawes, and I'm wondering where this 50 years came from, because I've only been here for less than a year. And I'm Ashley Barrow, and I'm celebrating by eating raw cookie dough and making myself sick. Oh, man. I'm jealous. <laughs> I'm dying at that last one because she told us she might be feeling ill on this podcast and then also told us she was still eating it. I'm sure it's still in there and we're going to have to edit it out. Says Jay, the uh, health worker. <laughs> Cookie dough's delicious. This is, like we mentioned, our 50th episode. By the time the Ravnica Allegiance stories are over we will have reached our one-year anniversary. It's not exactly 52, because we did some weird things, like release two casts a week for a little while there, because we're crazy people and did not realize that that was not a great idea when we first started out. It wasn't craziness, it was just stupidity. Oh, yeah. Naivete. So there's no real news to talk about at this point. We are waiting, hopefully, for an announcement day sometime soon. The only thing that the community at large knows about coming up is the ominously named War of the Spark, but there are no more product details out for that yet, so once we know more, we'll talk about it here on the cast. And then Ravnica Mythic Edition came out the day we're recording this, so last Thursday, and it has sold pretty well so far because (laughs) the sales totals were left up there, so... Hopefully it continues to do well. I really like this product, and I really love the art for a lot of these cards. And the um, the f- full bleed. Hopefully there's still some left when you're listening to this. They've been selling pretty good, pretty fast. But the totals that people are looking at right now, it's uh, really slowed down. So they might be a lot more available than the last Mythic Edition set was. Hopefully, when y'all are listening to this episode, if, if you forgot and just got reminded that Ravnica Legion's Mythic Edition was a thing, you can hopefully head over to the Hasbro eBay store and pick one up. So let's move on to listener questions. We had a number of listener questions come in during the last month or two. We hadn't had a whole lot of chances to answer them. We either had things like Children of the Nameless, which is a very long story for us to cover, or we had our guild summary episodes, so... Or we had weeks off for Thanksgiving and Christmas. If you asked a question to us a while back, we did not forget it, and we're going to try and get to all of them. We're going to try and keep them appropriate to the story at play. But other than that, let's go ahead and get started. Our first question comes through Twitter from at nerd underscore tantrum. I just finished reading the stories on the website and would like to ask for some novel recommendations. If possible, which ones would be the best of the bunch for you? Thanks. If you've read all the stories from Magic Origins onwards that are the ones featured on the story site, you're going to want to jump back to the start of the post-mending era. That's when the books like Agents of Artifice, The Purifying Fire, Alara Unbroken came out, all within about the span of a year. Those are all pretty good. Agents of Artifice kicked off most of the modern story today. The story with Bolas, with Tezzeret, with Jace and Liliana. 
The purifying fire is where Chandra and Gideon come into play, and Jaya, quite frankly. In her disguise as Mother Ludi, she knew too much. And then Alara Unbroken is Ajani and Sarkon Vall and Nicol Bolas. There are some, like, web comics that take place around there, and we'll link to one of the resource pages I put together for that stuff. Then completely skip over In the Teeth of Akum, even though it has Soren and Nyssa. It is just not a good book. The Quest for Karn is similarly not a great book. I'd recommend just reading story summaries for those. And then the next novels you want to get into are the e-novellas that came out right around the end of the novel era, which is the story of the Return to Ravnica, Gatecrash, and Dragon's Maze, when Jace becomes the Living Guild Pact, and Godsend Part 1 and Part 2, which is the story of Elspeth on Theros, which takes place right before Tarkir. And Tarkir is the first of the stories that you can easily find on the Magic Story site. So that covers about all of them. Is there anything I missed? Anything, anything you all would recommend? Personally, I like the Time Spiral Block books, but that's just me. I would honestly, I like them too, but I would wait until you've caught up on like the post-mending stuff before you jump back. The Time Spiral Block novels are a lot of fun, but you do need a lot of like baseline knowledge of the pre-mending story in order to get the most out of them. And I'll say, if you're only going to read two of those, read Agents of Artifice and The Purifying Fire. Agents of Artifice um, is just really relevant now, and it'll continue to be relevant. It's got a bunch of background that's not covered in the online stories, so well, you don't have to read it. You'll have just a lot more understanding if you do. And The Purifying Fire is not really that plot relevant, and a lot of it has been somewhat retconned. But I found that people just really, really like it. It didn't do well when it came out, but everybody that I've talked to that's read it now is like, this is my favorite one. It is so good. So um, I recommend those two. And something interesting about The Purifying Fire is that the author, Laura Resnick, was given like free reign to create Gideon in it. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, is that she is also known as a romance author, and it really shows. <laughs> that's true. That is absolutely true. Everybody always says that to me. I'm like, you're going to really think Gideon is sexy after you read this. And everyone reads it and it's like, yep, you were right, Ashley. Boyfriend material. Even I was fanning myself, Ashley. I mean, honestly, the man is like a statue. Our next question is trying to create a D&D campaign and can't find any info on Ravnican gods slash deities or annual festivities. Are there such? Are they guild specific for the guildless? All my players are really crazy about Ravnica, so I want to get it right. Thank you. And that's from Rimmerine. So the answer to that one would be the less obvious gods, because I don't really want to talk about, like, Rakdos, because you know who Rakdos is. But the less obvious gods are the Nephilim, which are worshipped by the Cult of Yore and maybe others. The Nephilim, the ones we've seen, aren't all of them, and there's clearly more going on there. If you want to learn more about them and the like religion around them, read Wake Up Call by Matt Cavada on the website from around the original Ravnica block. Then you've got the Utmunger, who are the gruel old ways gods. They're not talked about a whole lot, but we've mentioned them on the on the episode where we talked about the gruel, 
and Ilharg is very, very popular as the raised boar. You could probably just make up other similar sounding names to be other gods in the Gruul pantheon. Whether or not they're really Nephilim or what's going on there, that can also be up to you to decide. The last one that most people don't know about is Croct. Croct is the goblin god of misfortune on Ravnica. You would know about that one. <laughs> He's also the name of a particular clan of goblins, and his name tends to be a big curse word on Ravnica. So if you, like, stub your toe, you might go, Croct! Or um, if someone does something crazy, you might go, what in Croc's name? So that'll add a little bit of flavor to your setting. In terms of celebrations, the big one is obviously Festival of the Guild Pact. Everyone celebrates it. It's a big, big event. The Decamillennial was the focus of the very first Ravnica book. It was like a very, very big Festival of the Guild Pact but there are probably much smaller ones on an annual basis where they celebrate the new year. It's essentially a New Year's celebration. Though one could argue they might not have had it in the last couple years if it has rolled around since Jace has been missing, so who knows if they even still had it or if it's still continuing. They do it on Jace's birthday. As if he knows when that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they don't do it. <laughs> There's a big gruel holiday called Rakshav. We've talked about it before. It's not really a specific day, but it's a celebration announced after like something good happens for the clans or something like that, where they just kind of go wild and party, maybe do a little raiding, you know. So it's like my birthday. It's whenever I want it to be and whenever I feel it's opportunistic. And then the Rakdos, we just learned, have a celebration called Rage Fest. And the Rage Fest is basically just uh, a giant, like, Rakdos carnival through Rakdos territory that covers all the streets. You know, it's, it's kind of like the Rakdos Mardi Gras, it seems. So that's a very cool tradition that you can throw in there as well. We don't know if it's annual or if it's, like, quarterly or how they schedule it. But And those are the only three we really know of the celebrations on there. They don't really get into it all of that much. Since it is D&D, you're not really limited by the constraints of canon. If you want to strike something out or add something in or just totally go off and make up whatever you want, uh, it is D&D. Whatever happens in your campaign, that is what happens. So you said you were worried about getting it right. Don't worry about that. Just do what makes what's going to make it fun uh, and what's going to make for a good story. Because like I said, you're not constrained by canon. So for this, I'll say make it up. Yeah. And keep in mind that the story of Ravnica tends to be centered around the 10th district. Your session could go to a completely different district. They can have different ceremonies and holidays or celebrations in that district that aren't particularly celebrated very much in other districts, if at all. So there's plenty of ways to justify doing it. So like Ashley said, if, you're, if you want to take some liberties, there's not a whole lot of hard canon on it. So have fun with it. And uh, if you are short on ideas, I suggest um, taking stuff from, you know, other D&D canons and reskinning it. Because like I said, it does. you're not constrained by canon, so borrow stuff around and shape it to be what's going to make for a good story within your own campaign. So our last question comes from at Lome Dweller on Twitter. Lome Dweller says, hey, can you guys tell me how the Ravnican calendar works? Names of the months, the number of days in a month, and that stuff. Alright, so there are two answers here. 
The first answer is the old word of God about how the Ravnican calendar works. And the other answer is the Guildmaster Guide to Ravnica answer. The Guildmaster's Guide was designed to make it easy on players to be able to track days, or the GMs to be able to track days, track months, and that kind of thing for their campaign settings. So they made the Ravnican calendar match the Gregorian calendar. So it's 12 months, Selesny, which is obviously the Selesnia month, Dazo, Praz, Mokash, Pajal, Sizarm, Tevnember, Golgar, Quagar, Zvasker, Grieve, which is January, and then Zune, which is February. And so that would mean Selesny would be March. It was just a treasure listening to you say all those names. <laughs> it's mostly good. Zvasker's the tricky one. That's the one thing where having a Polish grandmother comes in handy. I know how to pronounce Slavic words fairly well. The old word of God from the original author said that there were 10 months in a Ravnican year. Now, we didn't know exactly how many days, but we could guess from some of the dates in the old Ravnica novel. 10 doesn't really work because even though he said 10... More than 10 months appear in the, the dates at the, he, at the start of chapters throughout the novels. So, you know, it's, it's clear that that wasn't quite, quite correct from then. What I will say about the 12 months and them matching the Gregorian calendar, which means they match their equivalent months. So, Zune is February, so it would have 28 days, for example. The thing about that is it may, you know, we may find out in canon later that that's not quite how it works in-universe. It would be quite coincidental if it matched the Gregorian calendar exactly, but I would say you could probably use the Guildmaster's Guide unless something else comes out later that contradicts it and not just author word of God. Or if you're using this for D&D, you could go use the information kind of like what they have in the Waterdeep Dragon Heist Guide for their calendar, where all of the months have uh, 30 days and they have the random festivals four times a year or five times a year that change up like between different things. But that's just an idea depending on what you're planning on using the calendar for. For what it's worth, I'm going to take the statement made in the book published by Wizards of the Coast over an author word of God comment said a decade ago. On a random forum. We're covering timeline stuff and, and dating systems in this month's Pull from the Deep. So if you are a patron on our second or third tiers, you'll get to hear a lot of my complaining about how dating systems have been handled in the past. Yay, continuity. So this week, Magic Story finally returns with Nikki Drayden's dives into the daily lives of members of the Town Guilds of Ravnica. So for Ravnica Allegiance, we're doing those five guilds, and we are starting with Rakdos in the short story, The Illusions of Child's Play. This story is all about a demon named Kodolag, who they call Kodo for short throughout most of the story. You know, he's your average Rakdos demon, couple thousand years old, 
you know, he used to perform in Rex Marty in front of Rakdos himself. Now lives a pretty quiet life, doing poetry and mocking the Azorius and the Gruul. You know, just, just your average regular artist. But he's got a problem. Because he has been participating in the Rakdos Rage Fest. And he has been hooking up with some hot effigy mage who has a shop in one of the Rakdos districts named Zeta who is a human, and he's been way too nervous to, like, actually talk to her and learn her name and actually try to date her outside of these crazy wild parties that the Rakdos have. So his buddy Ulrich, who's a tiny little devil and runs a art house theater. Not to be confused with Ulrich, that awesome werewolf commander. He is an awesome werewolf commander. We're not getting to that. I have a pin. <laughs> Anyway, so Kodo is in Zeta's shop, and outside is getting harassed by an Azorius Elecutor who's encroaching in the district and saying, hey, you can go repent at our new Azorius Repension Center. And Kodo's like, well, I don't have a soul, so I guess there's not much to save. In fairness, he... He was standing out in the street ogling into the window and the guy was walking up to him, so. Yeah, but it's still rude. Nobody walking on the street in a city wants to get talked to by random strangers. I'm from Philadelphia. I lived right next to New York a lot. Nobody wants that. Oh, believe me, I understand it happens at Dragon Con every year. Kodo meets Zeta in her shop and she's like carving skulls and putting them on dolls to use effigy magic basically the the voodoo doll trope where you can make an effigy of some government official that you want to inflict pain on or harass and you can do that they have a little chat kodo tries to throw his weight around and impress Sita and says hey i could probably get you to set up shop at rage fest tonight uh, my you know friend has a bar and theater you could Go over there and uh, sell a bunch of your effigies and make a ton of money. And she says, okay. And they do hit it off. They are they are both charmingly awkward in their own individual ways. And it was very enjoyable to, to read. They end up going to Ulrich's pub and Zeta's kind of stuffed away in the corner. Because um, they're worried about Azorius mages who are now cracking down on effigy magic. As they incur further into Rakdos territory. So Kuro is on stage, and he's doing a set, and it's just raunchy as hell. It's great. And then an Azorius law mage appears in the doorway. And Kuro has to stop doing his painfully hilarious Dovenbon impression, because Dovenbon's a fascist, and nobody likes him. And he's a huge dork. <laughs> so he starts, like, lightly mocking the gruel, and his set crashes and burns. And he has a horrible show... And Zeta's business dries up because people start returning the effigies that they just bought because the Azorius Mage is there. And Ulrich is like, wow, you guys all suck. And Kodo's like, shut up, you jerk. They have the, a very fun Rakdos friendship where they insult each other a lot, but it's all in good spirits. And by good spirits, I mean they're a demon and a devil. So bad spirits, but friendly. So on their way back to Zeta's shop, she spell checks a piece of graffiti because they spelled Dovin Bond's name wrong. 
Um, in my high school, so in my town, we've got two high schools. Um, and the rival high school, every year the seniors would come and graffiti our school. And they would always spell the name of their school wrong. And also, they would often misspell the year. Uh, they would misspell seniors. Um, they were the terrors, which is ironic why that made me think of them. Because they're the terrors. Their mascot is literally Satan. It's hilarious. Um, and they would constantly write the Tauros, the Taros. It's the same essence. Hey, when you're doing graffiti in a place where the Azores are cracking down, you got to get in and get out, and sometimes you're too nervous to get the spelling correctly. <laughs> Zeta corrects the spelling on this graffiti. No good deed goes unpunished. Which draws the attention of the Azorius Law Mage from earlier, who then arrests her for graffitiing public property and a whole bunch of other BS citations because that's what super cops do, because they're not fun. So Koto is like, crap, I just got my brand new girlfriend arrested. So he meets up with Ulrich, and Ulrich says, look, I know they took her to Uzek Maximum Security Prison, but if anyone can help us, I got a friend. So they go to this kind of renegade precog mage named Lucinka, who used to be a member of the Azorius and then left. She is also very delightful and, you know, has the standard precognitive person problem where she knows what everyone's going to think and say and do before it happens and has to routinely correct herself as she awkwardly navigates conversation that's technically in her mind's past but is happening in her present which is quirky and fun not gonna lie this was my favorite character of any of the stories thus far she's awesome she's hilarious she's very friendly and very cheeky because she knows things which I understand well, because I know things. And it's it's hard not to just, like, <sighs> subtly hint at future things. and Flaunting um... it again. Gosh. <laughs> so she gives Kodo and Ulrich a couple items in a box that's going to help them somehow get Zeta out of prison. So there is a baby's outfit with a nice little bib. There is a bottle of fancy whiskey, and then there is this blood fright amulet, which is this big-ass gem where if you crack it open, it'll send everyone within a certain radius into a bloodthirsty rage of murder and violence and rioting. So they're like, great, we gotta go into this prison with these items and we don't know exactly how to use them, but Lucinka says, you know, we'll know when we know, and uh, let's hope it all works out. I would like to point out that this blood fray amulet could also be, in a way, something that ties back to the previous stories, specifically the Boros one, where all of the people were arrested for the terror attack. That was from a mushroom. That was a fungus from the Golgari story. They thought somebody else had used something similar like that. So it wasn't exactly, it wasn't the mushroom that caused it, but they assumed this kind of magic was used for that. I thought they had confirmed that the Lich Lord had used the mushroom to imply Vraska in that massacre. Regardless of what the actual implement was, the theme is still repeated. Yes. Which I believe is probably going to become relevant. Is there maybe like a whole mechanic called Riot in one of yeah, these sets? Yeah, dude. <laughs> so 
So Kodo and Ulrich get in line to the visitor's ward in Uzek prison. And here's the first thing that they notice they have to do. There are a bunch of security mages patting people down and using magic to make sure they don't get through. And they notice one is kind of tired and sleepy and is waving people with babies through because, you know, whatever, people with babies aren't going to start anything. So Ulrich, being the little devil, has to put on this little baby outfit with a nice little bib and pretend to be Kodo's child and toddler. Which is hilarious because he's like a centuries-old devil. I do the same thing to get eat on uh, the kids' menus at restaurants. In order to distract a bunch of the guards, they are behind a minotaur, and they slip the bottle of whiskey into her hood so that it sets off a bunch of the magical alarms as she's trying to smuggle something in, and a bunch of guards pull her aside because she's a minotaur and she's going to get angry. And who does that minotaur turn out to be? The wife of Grimbly Wothis, the Minotaur from the very first Demir story that was published in Guilds of Ravnica all those months ago. Because her hubby got arrested at the end of that story. So that distracts all the guards and lets them go through this one tired guard. They think they're about to get caught, and as another Azorius guard says, Oh, by the way, here's a coloring book for your kid. And the coloring book is all about how to prevent violence by instructing our children about law and order and stuff, which is the most Azorius thing I've ever seen. It's also probably my favorite detail from any of the short stories so far. <laughs> right. And then to smuggle the amulet in, they had Ulrich swallow it, because he's got a stomach so powerful it can handle, like, the crappy food at his pub without, like, spraying diarrhea everywhere. And it's funny how it's brought up in a joke, but you don't really think much of it until it comes up right then and there. And I love how Icky has kind of weaved in these kind of, uh, what is it called? Chekhov's? It's not Chekhov's. Yeah, I was about to say, it's Chekhov's stomach. (laughs) There's a lot of great foreshadowing in the beginning of this story that becomes important later, but you don't know how. So if you were precog mage, it would be easy to figure out, but it got to unfold for the rest of us normal people. So they get in, they visit Zeta, and she reaches through this like electrical barrier and touches a piece of parchment in the coloring book. Because there's a kind of magic... Blight something, I, can't, I think it was blight paper? Blight paper, yes. That was also right at the beginning of the story, where if you draw a picture of someone, you can use really weak magic to inflict pain on them by ripping the paper up. But it's like magic weak enough that the Azorius mages won't detect it. Clearly, Dovin Bond has not inspected that room clip enough. <laughs> Kodo draws pictures of all the guards in the room and then just shreds all the paper, and they all keel over in pain. Zeta dives through the electrical barrier, and they start making a run for it. Zeta gets lost in the crowd and manages to escape, but then Kodo and Ulrich do get caught and they get thrown into a prison camp working on building another maximum security prison elsewhere in Ravnica. So it's, I think, a couple weeks later, and they're doing hard labor on this camp, constructing this new prison, and then Kodo realizes, wait, you know what we can do? Ulrich, is that amulet still inside you? It's funny because it's the words of Lusinka that triggers the thought 
he realized that some of these people were here because of crimes they hadn't committed yet and he realized that she was talking about all the innocents who may have been arrested for crimes they hadn't even committed yet. So there's a whole bunch of people who did actual crimes and were pre-arrested and all sorts of Azores injustice. So Koto was like, Ulrich, you still have the amulet. We have this huge metal structure here that I can do my acrobatics on and I can crack this thing at the top and cause this right and we can all escape. And Ulrich is like, yeah, I can probably bring it up for you. And Koto's like, great. And, like, waits for Ulrich to regurgitate it. But it's too far, so it comes out the other end. Because poop jokes are funny. Which I really appreciate. Because <laughs> we're grown-ups here, right? Speak for yourself. Nikki has not been shy about her love for potty humor. Which is why, you know, the Is It story had a huge glob of fat stuck in a sewer. It gets cheeky and gross, which is fun. So then Koto does break open the blood fray amulet. Huge riot happens, they get to escape, and then the story ends with Koto, Ulrich, and Kita, who did manage to escape, all meeting up with Lucinka again. And Lucinka is like, look, you're all super wanted by the Azorius now, so you can't stick around up here. But y'all are really talented, and y'all work really good together, and you can put together a performing troupe, and go live in the Undercity and form new identities. Oh, and uh, here's a box of gifts that'll help out. And, uh, you know, uh, Ko- Koto and Zita, um, you know, good luck with the wedding. And they're like, what? But they're like clearly into each other and clearly dating now. We know there's going to be a happy ending for the three of them in their new life in the Undercity. Getting to be awesome performers and doing cool artistic things like they had always wanted. Wait, wait, well, so let's let's not jump ahead of ourselves here. We know there's about to be a, a a huge upheaval on Ravnica. They might get married, but who knows if they're going to be very happy afterwards. What is not happy sounding about War of the Spark? You know what? You're right. That screams happily ever after <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But at least they get married. Yeah, it's nice. So we mentioned our big vocabulary word of the day is Chekhov's gun. If you don't know what that is, it means that if in the beginning of the story someone has a gun, before the end someone's going to get shot. That's been probably the most used literary device in these short stories, which is really exciting because it's one of my favorite tropes. All of you who have been like, oh, well, this thing is going to be relevant, probably whatever like thing is just randomly mentioned, it is probably going to be relevant because so far that's really been the case and i also love that so that's a very specific form of foreshadowing that's been used a lot she's very good at it because like there are little things that come up in the story that you don't think are even relevant and then they come up they end up being useful you don't immediately recognize it as a Chekhov's gun exactly nikki is great at that and it's something that i've really appreciated after the fact every time one of the interesting things is how easily and readily all the Azorius mages accepted that Ulrich was this baby of this demon-human relationship. In the first Ravnica, they're everywhere, but I wouldn't blame you if you're newer to Ravnica to not know, but humans have slept with basically everything on Ravnica, so there are half-demons everywhere. So, like, people wouldn't even blink at seeing a devil-looking thing and it being the baby of a demon and a human. Now, the funny thing is they're not even good-looking demons like on Innistrad. 
I was um, actually specifically looking this up for our campaign recently. What if Ravnica demons have a specific look? They pretty much all look like Rakdos. And honestly, as far as demons go, they're not that good looking, which is really funny. Like, y'all go to Innistrad, there's just so much better looking there. And the devils are all relatively tiny if you look at the three devils in all of the blocks. Because you have the Rakdos Cackler, the Footlight Fiend, and the Squealing Devil. All of them look relatively small, so it's very easy to, like, once you look at that visualization, like, it, it kind of makes sense that they, it's easy to misinterpret them as a child if they're wrapped up in swaddling and in a, a jumper or a romper, I think it was called. Honestly, are you going to question someone? Like, is that really a child? Your baby's really ugly. <laughs> well, it's the Azorius, so you never know. This is rude. We can't let you in. Your baby's too ugly. Or else, honestly, they would have never been able to take me anywhere as a child. <laughs> that is a joke, as I was probably one of the cutest babies that's ever been a baby. Says you. Well, what about Jenny? I was cuter than Jenny. Shots fired. <laughs> I can show y'all our baby pictures, and you can tell me. Anyway, magic. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing I wanted to talk about is how great Nikki is at taking these elements of the city, elements of society that are driven to farcical extremes, like the Azorius, and working within that context to tell like a very real story. So like the story about, you know, the the criminal justice system, she did it with the Boros really well and showed a lot of the complexity of law enforcement, and then she showed it again in this one with prisons, and it is just, it has been fantastic to read, because it's like, it's very farcical, you know, the, the demon is sneaking in with a devil swaddled in cloth to go see a human, and the guard is, the guards are like, sure, that's probably their baby, but at the same time, it's telling a very real story about criminal justice, and I really like that. The, how the guard was accepting of the fact that she wanted to touch her baby after being in prison for a little bit. Oh yeah, that was so real, right? That was very, very well done. Another uh, detail that comes up in this, it's not uh, new by any means, but it is something I'll point out that they have, um, you know, their precognitive magic, that they will arrest you before you have even committed a crime. Not only is, you know, that obviously not fair in its own, but that is so easily exploitable. Like, yeah, we don't like you, so you're we're gonna say that you're gonna commit crime. So you can just be arrested for anything just because they don't like you. Yeah, it's so ripe for abuse. But hey, Dovin surely wouldn't miss all of the faults in that, that whole process, would he? I'm sure that that has never and never will be exploited. These stories have been really excellent especially, you know, this one and the Boros one, I would say, in really using, like I said, this almost farcical fantasy environment to tell their, these very, very real stories. The first Ravnica's novels were good. I enjoyed the stories a lot, but they're fantasy stories, and they're, they're not really talking about real issues. And, you know, things like the line, you know, turning gentrification on its head and saying it's maddening to see my community fall victim to order and justice but the zorias moving in and pushing all the rakdos out is also very very real 
these stories have really put the urban in urban fantasy and they've been a lot more grounded than even just previous Ravnica stories and they're a huge departure from what we got in Dominaria which was a hearkening back to more the classic European fantasy slash mid-90s magic mage punk thing. I'll add, um, I realized this, well, I didn't, you know, realize it for the first time, but it really occurred to me while I was um, coming up stuff for our D&D campaign, why it was so difficult for me is that it's not, Ravnica's not high fantasy. It is definitely modern fantasy. I mean, this is a modern story. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it, they have Tudor houses and stuff, but it's not high fantasy at all. This is modern fantasy. Realistically, I love it, and I wish he had been given more, like more than just these short stories. I would, I would read a book with more of the stuff in it. I'm reading *Pray of the Gods* right now, actually, because I try and read at least one book or story from each of these magic authors that come up, uh, just so I get a feel of like the rest of their fiction. And uh, yeah, it's it's good stuff. You should really check out her other work. I think *Tempest* is her other novel that just recently came out yes last year somewhat recently all right well let's wrap this episode up with final thoughts so final thoughts for me is i actually i'm i'm kind of sad right now my local game store i just learned of like 25 years i've been going there since i was in like second or third grade or something long enough ago that i don't even remember I went in there to buy Pogs. They're finally closing their doors at the end of this month. So that's very depressing for me. Yeah, the owners were very kind to me. Back when Pokemon was a thing, they would, like, slip me cards before the actual pre-release. Like, they would they would slip me packs sometimes, because, you know, I was... I literally, I went in there for 25 years, and I love those people. So it's, it's both sad and not so sad, because they could really use a break. What year did you start going in? When I was in second or third grade, so doing the math. So older than me. Probably around when you were born. <laughs> You've been going there for one Ashley. For a whole Ashley. <laughs> Maybe like 1.1 Ashleys, yeah. Lorelai? So the Ravnica Allegiance pre-release was a little over a week ago now, but this is the first episode since it happened. And I top-aided again. I don't know how it happens. I guess I'm just good at pre-release sealed. But I picked Simic, ended up running more white than green cards. So I was more of an Azorius deck splashing green. But Hydroid Crisis was my promo, and that card's absurd. And I finished 6-1, and one, and top-8 ended up splitting and going home. Because who wants to stay for three more rounds? Because everyone's tired. This set's super cool. I had a lot of really, really good close games. This and Guilds of Ravnica have been some of the best, most balanced limited formats I have played in a long while. I think we're seeing really good payoffs from the play design team being in full force in developing magic sets. And I'm I'm very excited for what lies in the future. My final thought is I also am very excited for the standard. This is the first standard that I'm actually spending more than the cursory amount for pre-releases and whatnot that i'm actually going to be buying into a legit standard deck for once well at least legit in the fact that i'm paying more than 25 dollars to build mono blue aggro you're, you're not building a deck with the elf crab 
I've always been a huge fan of the uh, of Aristocrats decks as well as the Elf deck, and this the Elf deck in current standard, it just seems like it's missing something. I mean, I'm going to try it, but it, it it's again, it's I'm going to be spending a lot of money on the standard, so like I already have most of the stuff for the Elf deck just because I have a lot of stuff for the modern deck. Plus, I have a bunch of the I already have Steely Champions, and whatnot, so I'm going to end up getting the crabs, but. I went around the pre-release getting the uh, Rakdos or Mardu Aristocrat stuff, and I'm really excited to play it. People are calling it Judith Priest, after Judas Priest, the oh, metal gosh. band, which is awesome. I was going to call mine Mardivas after what Nick Prince named the version of the deck that I'm going to be using. So Nice. And my final thought is I, unfortunately, could not do a pre-release, and I'm not really going to be able to play standard because I moved back to my little hometown and we don't really have a store here. So, sad. It's okay, you can pet Annie. I'll play with Annie. Well, not until we get um Dog Tribal becomes uh, viable and standard. Hopefully one day. So if you like hearing us yell about all the kinds of fun things that are happening in Magic these days, you can help support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash the Vorthoscast. Everyone who supports the show gets access to our Discord community, where we are gathering Vorthoses from around the world and doing fun stuff together. Our second tier gets you a monthly mini-episode called Pull from the Deep, where we cover a topic that we wouldn't cover in a normal episode. Something weird or esoteric or maybe topical with the time of year. Something neat and a little fun. And then we have a newly launched tier that gets you live listens with our episodes as we record them. So if you are at that tier, every Thursday around 7 or 7.30 Eastern Time, you can hop on our Discord server, hop in our voice chat, get muted because you're not allowed to talk because it's our podcast, and listen to us ramble on and hear Arjun interrupt, sometimes Annie barks. Sometimes we just make jokes and can't stop laughing and have to calm ourselves before we go on to another thing. So you get to hear not only all that behind-the-scenes stuff, but you get to hear, essentially, the episodes a couple days early. So that's a cool new feature we're doing. So if that's interesting to you, you can head over to Patreon and support us today. Another reward for our patrons on Patreon is that we are doing a weekly Ravnica D&D session. We've already started, so unfortunately we don't have any more spots for this round. But if you are in our server, you can pop in once a week and listen and just, you know, laugh along with us because we're having a pretty good time. If you're listening to this on Monday, then we will be meeting tonight. So if that sounds cool to you, then I will see y'all there. And if there's enough interest, I might be able to, I might be willing to start up a second one if push comes to shove. I figured that would happen. Because I'm uh, precognitive like that. We have some patrons as well who might be interested in doing that. So if you're looking for some like-minded Vorthos to run a game, as long as it works within the schedule of the other people running the games, we don't mind using the Discord server for all of that. So thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos Cast. <laughs>